Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 297, and this week, I'm speaking with Clifton Harness, co-founder of TestFit, and I asked him, will technology replace the architect? This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more at rcat.com. And FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. Clifton Harness, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, while obtaining his Bachelor of Architecture from the University of Texas at Austin, Clifton Harness was the first B-Arch to obtain certifications from the McCombs uh, School of Business, in business, and in real estate. After graduation, Clifton joins uh, Streetlights Residential, a Dallas-based real estate development company. And prior to starting his current company, TestFit, Clifton worked with uh, college roommate Ryan Griege. Is that how to say that? Grieg. Grieg. Yeah. Brian Grieg. I want to get that right. So it's Brian Grieg after uh, work on, on weekends. Um, this work would become Residential Engine, the precursor to testfit.io. Clifton lives in Dallas with his wife, Annalise, 
and their golden doodle, Brinkley. Clifton and Annalise are team members at Apartment Life, a ministry devoted to fostering community within apartment buildings. And he's also a member of the current cohort working with our friends over at Zero Sixty, the AEC Accelerator. We've been focusing on Zero Sixty throughout the past few episodes. Um, so you've heard uh, Andrew Zukowski over at Join.Build. We spoke with Jim Ronay over at SoLiquid last week. Um, we spoke with Herman, one of the co-founders, uh, Herman Aparicio, of, um, co-founders of Zero Sixty back in episode 294. So the last few weeks, you've been hearing all about Zero Sixty and the companies that have been working with them. And I'm super excited. That's I love doing this. I love startups and I love technology and I love hearing about how uh, these companies and their innovative ideas are advancing our profession. Um, so Clifton Harness, <coughs> God bless you. And thank you <laughs> for, for hanging out with us today and, and sharing a little bit about TestFit. Uh, thanks for being here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we need to, we need to clean up our, our bio, make it sound more fun. Well, that's no problem (laughs) because the first question I'm going to ask you is your origin story. So you can clean it up right now. Um, Uh, go back to where you discovered architecture, what inspired you to become an architect and give us that story from where you started to where you find yourself today with TestFit. Yeah. Great. Yeah, origin story. All right, so I'm not a storyteller, so I'll try to I'll try to make it as fun as possible. Um, I uh, my, my dad's a real estate developer. Um, he he does garden apartments. Uh, you know these these sort of 15 acre sites that have the same building copied you know all over them. And um, I sort of remember as a kid looking at that and thinking, man, like I, I'm sure we could do better than than this. You know, you kind of you, you look at garden apartments and you think, man, like we probably could design things better than that. Um, <clears throat> and that's what initially got me interested in, in, uh, in architecture as, as a career. It would be a way to, to help my dad out. <laughs> um, and, uh, in that process, uh, I met some really awesome people. Um, you know, Rick Archer, who's a, a principal or, or the CEO at Overland Partners a firm in, in San Antonio, um, he's been a mentor of mine for, for about 15 years now. Um, and so in the middle of, of high school, I, I knew I wanted to go into architecture. Um, and so I, I started building a relationship with him and Overland is a very interesting firm in that they don't really have a process. They just have values, uh, that they try to make their buildings, uh, meet. So, you know, their values are, you know, building is strategic, systemic, sustainable, beautiful, experiential, meaningful, contextual, Um, so, you know, every building should be all of those things. Um, and so it's a, it's a, their KPIs for the buildings are are, are pretty insane for most people to most, you know, commodity kind of architects to, to try to accomplish, especially if a developer is, you know, squeezing you for, for, you know, squeezing the design out of you basically. Um, so I, I initially, you know, saw, saw architecture as, as a very, uh, meaningful, um, long-term career path, you know, something that I could do and, and be a, a meaningful member of, uh, you know, my community. Um, then I go to architecture school, um, and, uh, you know, kind of my bio, it was, you know, I, I was the first kind of guy that was like, no, I'm going to go get some other business related, uh, you know, cert- certifications. Um, and I actually had to get, 
uh, studio. <laughs> I had to convince UT to, to change my studio uh, time uh, so that I could go attend business classes. Um, and they were, you know, the, the administration at the time at, at UT was, was pretty, pretty against doing that. Like, you want to go get business classes? Are you crazy? <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the reason why, uh, I, I did that was that, uh, connected with, uh, you know, I, I wanted to figure out how to do real estate development on these, these really dense, uh, urban infill, uh, sites. Uh, so I ended up working as an intern for Riverside resources in, uh, Austin, Texas. It's a very, it's a very small, uh, development shop, but they, they make really impactful buildings. They're really, uh, really great. You know, they dot the skyline and, um, ended up being, being a development intern there. And they start introducing me to concepts like yield on cost and internal rate of return. And, um, you start to, to learn that there's this whole other half of the design process, uh, that is rooted in finance. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of like a Rubik's cube, you know, like it's all just one Rubik's cube, but there's different views. You can look at, look at it from the left, you look at it from the right. Well, as architects, you're really only looking at the building design. Um, and in order to be the best designer, and this is my opinion, in order to be the best designer you can be, you also need to understand the pro forma and the finance and, and everything that, um, that, you know, kind of the lifeblood of the, of the project, which is money and cash flow. Um, so I remember just sort of being mystified by that whole side of the, the process. Um, so became an intern, uh, started working in real estate development, um, started to understand finance a little bit better. Uh, and, uh, in that process, I started started looking at how how weak the connection between uh, pro forma and building is. You know, in, in the Excel model, it's 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 like, you know, we have three hundred thousand feet of of rentable space, and that's how the building is represented uh, <laughs> in the financial model. Which, as an architect, like you're just like, wow, that is, it's not even qualitative. You can't you can't win an, uh, a qualitative design argument. Uh, with a pro forma because it's all based on quantity. Um, so that's, I, I remember thinking, man, like that's, that's something that could be, be completely disrupted if we start changing how, how we do performance. Um, so at this point in time, I am, uh, nearing my end of college. Um, I got married, uh, before I graduated, uh, lovely, lovely bride, Annalise. Um, and she had been out of school for, for our, about a year and, you know, B arcs are five years. So I was, I was a year behind. Um, and she wanted to move to Dallas, uh, to go to, uh, DTS, which is a you know, Dallas theological seminary. Uh, and so I was looking at companies in Dallas, um, and all my peers are, you know, they're going to go work at HKS and we're going to go work at these, you know, the three letter acronym, uh, firms and, um, or Corgan or, you know, th there's some really great design firms in Dallas. Um, but I was, I was looking around, uh, for a development company that would, uh, give a damn about design. Um, and there was this really interesting company in, in Dallas called streetlights residential. Um, and they have, uh, they were doing the vertical integration, you know, before vertical integration was cool. Uh, <laughs> 
so they have, you know, the, the construction, uh, company, the design company, the development company, um, the investment company and all these, all these companies are, are housed under the, the same roof. Um, so you, you couldn't ask for a better place to, to really learn, uh, as many parts of the process, uh, as you could. Um, and up until this time, like my experience in architecture had been, you know, red lines and, you know, draw, uh, wall details. And, you know, you're like, you don't really know wh- why you're drawing these wall details because you, you, you're young and you don't really understand that there's a whole building that has all these different materials. And, um, but thankfully that, that kind of stuff was super boring to me. Um, and I was more interested in like how the whole deal comes together and, and how the, uh, you know, how the, the site plan interacts with the pro forma. And at Streetlights, they gave me, uh, really two, I, I was running kind of two jobs at the same time, um, working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. Uh, the first half of my job was site planning, uh, laying out buildings, um, you know, relationship between building and parking and, uh, you know, solving unit mixes, which means, you know, you're, you're getting the right, uh, quantities of units, uh, of different types. Um, you know, small studio units compared to large two bedroom units, you know, different markets perform based off of those unit mixes. Um, and, uh, uh the other half of my job was, was drawing unit plans. Um, so we had, you know, this whole you know, 10,000 unit plans or something that they had built, not 10,000, it might be 250 different unit plans that they had already built in the last couple of years. Um, and our job was to consolidate those into a, a kit of parts that could be uh, reusable, you know, for, for the next 30 projects or something. Um, so we took, you know, these 200 units, we boiled it down to eight. <laughs> we had eight units that we use in every single project. Um, and so when you're working in this sort of vertically integrated company, um, you're trying to eliminate as many variables as possible, uh, so that everybody can be on the same page and everybody can move more quickly. Uh, so the site plan and the kit of parts approach, um, helped, you know, not just the design group, but the construction team, you know, they're, they had the kit of parts just completely priced out. Uh, they knew, you know, how many dishwashers we'd need, how many square feet of tile we'd need. Um, and we would know within 15 minutes, you know, it's, uh, it was really incredible kind of process. Um, but what I noticed was the chink in the entire thing was the site planning. It took forever to get a single iteration done. Um, and as uh, many architects know, you know, the more iterations you can go through, typically the better the, the end result. Um, and so I started looking out, uh, l- looking out in the industry of different uh, generative design solutions that were out there. Uh, they were all pretty much impossible for a single person to figure out how to do it uh, in an afternoon. Uh, so you know, that, that's kind of when the, the, the thinking about doing uh, test fit, um, as a software started, started to percolate in my head. Um, I had done a little bit of stuff in undergrad, but it was, it was, I didn't have a vocabulary to really apply it, uh, to a professional, professional setting. So Streetlights gave me that vocabulary and I, I connected with, uh, Ryan Grieg, 
who's my roommate, uh, for a couple of years, uh, while in Austin, uh, at the university of Texas. Uh, and he's a, just a brilliant software engineer. Um, and I said, you know, Ryan, I have these, these very specific business related problems. You know, do you think that you could help me solve them? And a lot of them are just math based and, you know, software, software guys love math. He's really great at math. Uh, and so, the first thing he built was like a terminal application that would help me solve a Unimix. Um, and then we sort of built on that from there. Uh, and we did it on nights and weekends for about a year and a half. Uh, Ryan ended up getting laid off from his mobile game development company, which, you know, mobile games is probably even in a, a riskier uh, industry to be in than architecture because uh, it ebbs and flows <laughs> pretty, pretty uh, horrendously. Um, and so he started working on, uh, it was called residential engine at the time. We hadn't thought of marketing or branding or anything. We just said, Oh, we'll just call it residential engine. Um, uh, and we did a beta We had a couple of, uh, customers, uh, early adopters, uh, tested out. Um, and the moment when we had a development guy, uh, get to flex a site plan in real time, you know, he goes, this is the future. Uh, this is how we're going to do things in the future. Um, and so, uh, we ended up shipping, uh, or I ended up quitting my job at streetlights. Uh, you know, the, the, the C level leadership there was basically like, uh, either you're going to quit and go do this or you'll work here and be miserable and you'll miss out on a really cool opportunity in, in your life. And so they've been really supportive. They've been a, a paying customer, uh, for a while now. And, um, couldn't be more thankful for, for streetlights and what they've done for us. Um, so yeah, so, so that, that's street, sort of the streetlights, they weren't in, or maybe there wasn't an opportunity for that, but they weren't interested in having you develop it in house with them or did you not ever give them that opportunity? No, we, we pitched it. Um, but I think to Doug Chesnut's credit, uh, the CEO there, um, He's, he's kind of like, we're not a software mm -hmm. company. Like you'll have yeah. a better chance of doing this on your own. Right. So they know their strengths. They don't want to dive into a new technology that they're not equipped. They're, they're focused, clearly focused on doing what they're doing and, and making that as efficient and effective as possible. This would distract yeah. them from that. That Yeah. Their, their mission is, their mission is to do, you know, 3000 units a year or something, a huge amount of, of units. And, uh, while building software for that sounds really useful, uh, it's not their core mission. Right. Right. Okay. So he encouraged you to, to take it and run with it. He literally kicked me out of the nest basically. <laughs> yeah. And so what did you do after that? Once, so now you're out and now you, you have to do this full time. <laughs> was it, uh, uh, was it full confidence or was there a little bit of panic involved or what do you do? Oh, so, so much panic, man. You're <laughs> running a, uh, not venture backed customer funded startup and you only have like one customer. Um, so, you know, you, you, you kind of, you know, the other day I was talking to, to, to one of our advisors and I'm, you know, he's like, well, how'd you get this thing off the ground? And, um, literally sitting in a Starbucks, uh, from seven 30 in the morning to, to 10 PM, uh, crawling the internet, just, finding people that I think might be interested, um, copying, you know, guessing email addresses, um, you know, people hide their email address from people like me. <laughs> uh, but I got pretty good at guessing them. And, and, uh, in the first, 
30 days, uh, I sent, I think well over three or 4,000 emails, um, to, to industry people. Um, and that's what got us our first, I think 15 customers. So if you're paying attention, the hit rate for sales is extremely low. Um, you know, 15 out of 3000 is, is pretty, uh, pretty low. Uh, but we had no, you know, no, no credibility, no track record, um, at that point in time. Um, but you know, our first, our first couple of customers, you know, STG design in Austin and then, uh, Allen Harrison company in Houston first two. So before we get into what test fit is, I want to know what Annalise thought when you lost your job and you were, <laughs> and you were about to take on this, was she, was she fully supportive and, and confident that this was the right direction or was there some resistance? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, streetlights, uh, they kicked me out sort of like, you need to go do this, mm -hmm. but they didn't give me like, they didn't fire me or lay me right, 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 right. I, I, um, it was, uh, you know, about a year, a year in, uh, they said, Oh, like, the, so you're actually, uh, making money. Okay. So we'll fill your position. So they had, they had left my position open for me to come back <laughs> in <laughs> case I had failed. Um, but Annalise, Annalise, uh, <laughs> she uh, was, uh, she knew that I always wanted to have my own company at some point, uh, but she thought that it would be like when I was in my 40s or when I had learned <laughs> about the world, you know, and um, uh, <laughs> so she was like, well, I, we just had to really move that timetable up quite a bit. Um, and so I made a budget, you know, so okay, we're not going to spend more than this amount of money in savings and um and we, uh, we definitely did spend more than that amount of money in savings, uh, to get tested off the ground, but, uh, it was, uh, money well spent, I think. Um, yeah, she, 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 you know, today she was like, you know, when are we going to start trying for kids and when are we going to buy a house? And, you know, I'm like, well, we got to dearest the company a little bit more before we can start doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I asked. Cause it's, you know, there's, it's not just you making these decisions, right? When you're married and you have a family, it's, it's a, uh, it's you're not making those, those decisions all by yourself. True. Um, yeah. She was, she was the hardest one to convince, I think out of, out of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. My parents are like, yeah, go do it. You know, <laughs> and my wife's like, Hey, but we have savings that we should probably, you know, not spend. <laughs> right. Right. So, so tell us about test fit. What, what, te what is test fit so we can understand what it is and how it works. Yeah. Uh, so I'm speaking to architects, so I'll give you the architecture yeah. version. Um, it's practical generative design. Uh, and that means that within uh, 45 minutes of touching our software, you'll be able to generate something useful. Um, sometimes less than, you know, 45 minutes, but you know, you just say 45 minutes. Um, and what practical generative design means is that, uh, we try to solve, uh, problems in the planning, you know, part of the design phase uh, or design process, um, that have already been solved before. Um, so, uh, the current process is roll out a piece of trace paper on top of some kind of survey and just start drawing things with a scale in your hand. Well, most designers have already solved that problem a million times. Right. Uh, if you're a site planner by trade, you've literally site planned things hundreds of thousands of times, um, either in your head or physically doing it. Um, so 
we said, okay, uh, we're just going to embed sort of the, the knowledge of uh, a designer into an algorithm and, and see, see what kind of good results we get out of that. So for example, uh, never draw parking garages, you know, rectangular parking garages ever again. Our software just takes care of that. It draws the ramp. It counts all the parking stalls for you. Um, it draws it to, to your specifications of what dimensions of parking stalls you want. Uh, how many levels tall is it? So whenever I see designers roll out trace paper and draw a parking garage, I'm like, you're wasting your time. Like this has literally been solved with software. You don't need to do this again. Um, and then we, uh, solved, um, some basic massing, uh, problems. So test fit is a new urbanistic, uh, modeling tool. So it's trying to hold down property edges, um, trying to be, do denser buildings. Uh, and you know, the thing about, uh, housing buildings is that they're very algorithmic, you know, draw your, draw your double at a corridor, place it around a garage. Um, you know, then you put the units on top of the, you know, the, the, the corridor hosts the units, uh, the staircases are hosted by the, the corridor as well. So <clears throat> we took what I had learned, you know, the hard way, uh, while site planning, you know, with trace paper and fat tip, you know, flare tip markers and we codified it, um, into, uh, generative design. So it's, it's generative, it generates stuff. Um, but we call it practical because, uh, we have a lot of co-creation tools and what co-creation means is, uh, you're partnering with software to get a job done. Um, it's not you versus the software. It's you with the software to get the job done. So, um, they're the best co-creation tool that, that I think we've shipped with so far is a, a manual massing mode where like tests will generate just garbage sort of, uh, party. Um, and so we have this manual mode that you can go in as a designer and, and, and fix it and make it better. Um, so that's when the software is good at counting units and solving parking stalls. And, and it's good at like sort of the boring, the boring stuff. And as a designer, you can start doing the more important things, which is like, how do we address the street? Um, what is the scale of the building and you know, what are our setbacks and being compliant? So, so for an example, we, if we have, a uh, an empty lot in a dense urban environment and we wanted to design a new building for that, space test fit very quickly will give you multiple solutions for how that space can be used uh given the parameters that you give it correct uh so we'll give you one solution uh we'll automatically generate one solution um you as the user are responsible for for generating more solutions um our goal is to not do this sort of uh cloud compute model where you throw a, a design problem into the ether and you expect it to find a good solution for you. Um, that's actually pretty stupid. And it's a waste of electricity in my mind. <laughs> uh, so instead we, we, we try to generate, you know, a building diagram that is useful from the very beginning, uh, and then allow the designer to, uh, fix it, you know, to, to make, to, to make it better. Um, we do have some, you know, generative design tools that'll just generate a bunch of stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of stuff. It's not really useful. Uh, what's more useful is if you craft with some kind of intention, every single scheme that goes into, you know, to comparing schemes. 
We'll be right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, and FreshBooks. Have you been to RCAT.com recently? It's the number one most used website for finding building product information, and it has a new look. RCAT has updated their site to get you the data that you want that much faster. Their search now allows you to choose what kind of information you want, like CAD, BIM specifications, and you only get those results. Just that data, that's all you're going to get. RCAT is also constantly fine-tuning their search engine to make sure you keep getting the information that you ask for fast and easy. Of course, it's still free and it requires no registration, not even a login. It doesn't require any email. It does not require any money. It's free. If you need building product information and you haven't yet used RCAT, it's time to go check it out. If you've never tried RCAT, head over to RCAT.com and try it out. You'll be glad that you did. That's RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Go check it out and let them know that Entree Architect sent you. In case you were wondering, 192 hours works out to about two business days every month. Two business days. Well, why the math? If you're an architect and you're using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, that's the amount of admin time that you can save every year. How? Well, FreshBooks is so fast and so easy to use that it changes the way that you deal with your paperwork. FreshBooks is the simplest way to be more productive, more organized, and most importantly, it will get you paid quickly. You can create and send really professional looking invoices in under 30 seconds. And when you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether they've seen it, which puts an end to that guessing game on you know, whether they got that invoice or not. If waiting for a client's check in the mail is slowing you down, slowing down that cash flow, with literally two clicks, you can set yourself up to receive online payments. Oh, and your clients, they will love paying by credit card straight from their invoice. FreshBooks helps you avoid having that awkward talk with your clients about past due payments. FreshBooks automates late payment email reminders. This is my favorite part. So you can spend less time chasing payments and more time working on your projects. If you have any questions whatsoever, FreshBooks award-winning customer service is amazingly helpful. They're super friendly and they have zero attitude. Plus, a real live person usually answers in three rings or less. To claim your month-long unrestricted free trial, go to entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks and enter entrearchitect in the how did you hear about us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks. RCAT and FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So is that one design, that one layout that it generates, is that from the algorithm algorithm's point of view, is it the best solution for that site? No. So what nope. is it what is it what's the benefit of using TestFit for that that example? Yeah. So everybody's saying, okay, well, I want the most efficient building. I want the best building. I want the, you know, to, to who's, to who's KPIs. Mm -hmm. right. Um, so if you ask the land seller, the best building is the one that, you know, gives them the most amount of money for, for their land. Uh, if you ask the architect, it's one that's really well crafted and it has a base, a middle, a top, it's got, uh, you know, rhythm and on this edge and it's got, you know, 
all the, the sort of uh, design oriented goals, you know, achieved. If you ask the developer, well, it's the one that gives him the most uh, yield on cost or the you know ROI. Um, so everybody's got a very different opinion uh, about what the most efficient building is. Um, and you could build a system to solve for all of those opinions uh, that's done with you know algorithms, but the human mind can already do that really well. So why rebuild you know a system like that? Uh, so the point the point of testfit is we can generate options you know hundred times faster. Um, we can generate parties hundred times faster and it's all, it's all quantitatively, um, it's all been tabulated for you. Uh, so, you know, guys that are, are drawing out parking and, and counting parking stalls manually, uh, you're wasting your time. That's not part, that shouldn't be part of your job. That should not be something that you have to do. And furthermore, you're a human, you're fallible. Uh, you're going to count things wrong. So, you know, software is an algorithm. It's a procedure for counting things, and it's better at it than we are. So we're using it for the areas that are sort of repetitive and redundant and the dumb part of the buildings, to put it into a, a easy way to look at it. And then the things that take more thought and more design and more skill, um, that's the work that we're putting in in addition to uh, or an overlay to the, to the, to the right. dumb side of the building. Right. All we're, we're, we're a really solid skeleton generator, uh, for, you know, the 90% of the building that, that is algorithmically generated. Um, the other, you know, I, I got in trouble on a, on a LinkedIn article that I wrote because I said, you know, our, the future of architecture is, is basically the 10% of the building that, uh, an algorithm can't, can't kind of figure out. Uh, so what that means is like the facade, um, the common spaces that have, you know, design intervention from the, the sort of repetitive commodity parts of the building. That's really going to be where, where the future of, of architecture in commodity buildings is going to be. Um, the stuff, you know, especially if you get this stuff linked up to, to a factory, uh, here as a designer, you're, you're, you're more of like, a managing the whole sort of logistics process, uh, more so than a designer. So I, I think when architects, and that's who's listening here, are mostly architects, when they hear that and they see um, software like TestFit, they get nervous. You know, they, they feel threatened that that technology, this is very early on in, in where this technology is going. Um, what do you say to those architects that, that see their profession being taken over by technology? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, I've got a bachelor of architecture, uh, and what I did was partner with a software engineer. Um, so, uh, the easy answer I think is, look, you're going to, you're going to need to do a lot more software. You need to start building software. You're going to need to start doing more computational design. You're going to need to start doing things, um, in a much more automated way. Um, that's on, on sort of the process side of things. Um, but on, on the product side of things, uh, the, the profession of architecture, uh, is going to look very different in, in 15 years. You're going to be, you're going to be solving far more complicated problems than just buildings. Um, you know, societal problems. What, that's that's where, where the future, where do you see the future of architecture going? I've had this conversation with other people. People have heard me talk about this in the past. 
Um, what is your take on where the profession is going if they're willing to evolve and go there with it? Yeah. So, uh, at a very, or a very, uh, basic, uh, thing that every architect is, is a problem solver. Um, but we're also can live in the subjective world. So we're an objective problem solver that lives in a subjective world. Um, so you can apply that problem to, or that problem solving ability to like affordable housing and, um, things that, uh, homelessness is a good example. And I would look at Overland partners really, they, they do some pretty interesting work around, uh, designing stuff. Uh, but most of the time or some of the time they'll, they'll come back at, at, at their, at their client with, you know, this isn't really a design problem. Like you might need to restructure how your, how your organization thinks, you know, instead of applying and, you know, design or a new, instead of building a, a, a 2 million square foot office building, why don't we just restructure how the company works currently? Um, so y- your, your role as a consultant, uh, to, you know, your client is, is going to not just be, you know, for the building itself. There's way more things, um, that we can solve Yeah, and I, we can, and we can monetize our time for. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that, that architects, the, the definition of architecture is going to change. The role of the architect is going to change. Um, and those architects that evolve with that, those changes will thrive. And those architects that resist that change and try to hold on to the tradition in the past, um, while technology and software and computers take over much of the work that we used to do because we had to, because there were not tools that allowed us to do it more efficiently or more effectively. Um, if, if we don't evolve, we, we become obsolete. And some other profession takes over the areas of construction and building and the built environment that we could control, that we could have an impact on because someone's going to take on that role. And yeah. If, and if we don't, you know, someone else will. Yeah. I mean, it just, you can kind of look at, let's look at WeWork for a second. Um, big kind of implosion at the, at the end there, but you know, uh, case was a, a computational design company that did, did a lot of architectural design work. Uh, we work acquired case, uh, because they could do interior fit outs for like, 50 cents a square foot or something. And a typical architect is like five bucks a square foot. Um, so (laughs) they had done it by automating a lot of things. Um, so there are going to be firms that can figure out, uh, the process. I think in architecture, we're really good at products, right? We're really good at, at, at this is the finished result. There's, here's the renderings, you know, here's Enscape. We already have a photo reel rendering, uh, software, you know, this is what it's gonna look like. Um, but I only think about 10% of architects are really, really focused on process. Um, how you get from point A to point B and how you can do it much more effectively. Um, and, and I'm one of the weird, you know, you, you go to these BIM conferences and you're, you're amongst your people because, uh, we're all the weirdos that are in that 10% that are just really focused on, you know, okay, how do we just move data and how do we just solve these problems quickly? Uh, instead of waiting, you know, long periods of time for, for answers to, you know, questions to be answered. Yeah, I, I, I think that also not only is the profession changing, but I think the generation of architects that are coming into the profession are already already coming in with that mindset that technology is here, that we can use that technology, that we will use it to our benefit. 
the profession. They're, they're much more flexible in what the profession is and the definition of what, uh, what architects do. The role of the architect is much broader for the, for the, the generation that's coming in today. Um, when you speak with them, they speak differently. They, they're more entrepreneurial. They're more problem solvers. Um, they're, they're using the technology. They've been brought up with technology. It's just part of their DNA. It's not something that, that no, it's no longer just a tool that we're using. It's part of the process. It's part of creating. Um, and so the profession will change with that as well, just through, uh, through the evolution of the people who are, who are becoming architects. Yeah. Uh, so let's just look at like red lines for a second, uh, a generational difference in red lines. Um, the early on my first, you know, sort of intern job, you know, here's, here's a, a stack of, uh, of plans that have been redlined. Um, and your job is to go into the CAD file and like literally change you know, words or move a dimension string because it was annoying or something. Um, I don't see a lot of millennials wanting to print out a giant stack of paper and then writing out all the red lines and then handing them to somebody else. You know, you're doubling the effort, right? You're saying we need to change this part of this thing and it would take you the same amount of effort to just do it in the software (laughs) as it would to write it out in a red line. Um, so redlining, I think eventually, uh, will be a shadow of what it is today. Um, you also are going to use, you know, Bluebeam and stuff that's more collaborative and, um, you can start to share red lines with people and, you know, it's no longer on this analog piece of paper that can get lost in the shredder. Um, so that, that's one thing that, that I see is like immediately when I came into the architecture profession, I was like, why isn't this guy just fixing this stuff on his own? Um, cause it would, you know, and you kind of learn that, well, he, he's not really comfortable in Revit. So that's why he wants to have it printed out. And so, you know, so like that, that kind of, that kind of guy, he's, you know, no longer fits with the technology. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more examples, but redlining is like something that yeah. everybody everybody is experienced. That's a very good example. Um, so we talked a little bit, uh, Clifton, about the future of architecture and where it's going and where we can go with it. Uh, what's the future of TestFit? What What do you imagine TestFit becomes, and how does it uh, change the way we do architecture? Yeah, so uh, we we're a little bit different than. Uh, some of the other kind of startup companies, uh, we are not venture funded, uh, we're customer funded. So, um, at this point in time, the future of our, our roadmap is really governed by what our customers want. Um, and the con they, they like the concept, uh, almost universally. Um, the concept is, is liked, uh, but it's a matter of creating, you know, the generative design algorithms that can address different market sectors, um, and creating the logic to solve more complicated buildings. Um, so it's, it's really solid at, at, at doing, you know, like 5% of the market today. Um, but if I'm a, a firm owner and, you know, we're going to invest in test fit, which is, you know, pretty expensive software. It's more expensive than Revit. Um, it's got to do more for, for, for me as a firm owner. So 
in the near term, uh, we're, we're answering to, to customer requests and, and building, you know, a more stable solution. You know, it's got bugs and stuff. Uh, but in the long run, uh, we're going to try to be a more generalized solver uh, that can do more building types and, and really affect the bottom line for, for some of these smaller firms um, that, that maybe don't have enough uh, money to really hire a computational designer or somebody that can automate uh, some of this stuff for them. Is the is the lack of venture funding uh, a strategic decision, or is it that it's difficult to find funding at this point? Uh, no, not difficult to find it uh, because we're a startup that is making money and has right. customers and That's has traction. Um, not difficult to find it. It's finding the right money that that is that is hard. So um, it's a strategic decision. You've decided that you don't want to be bound to a venture capitalist at this point. Right at this point. Uh, unless it is like a home run, like a group that, that really feels like they can smart money is, is really mm-hmm. kind of what we're looking for. Um, you know, I'm not going to go take like a million bucks from some, uh, Russian oligarch that is just trying to get money out of Russia. Right. <laughs> like, sorry, I'm not, not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Clifton. Um, so what is one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? That's a question that I ask everybody, and I'd love to to get your thought on uh, on that answer, an answer for that question. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> my initial thought is, like, talk to Jam, uh, JMB. Uh, they're, they're in our cohort at Zero Sixty. Um, they're really focused on how they can provide value for, you know, mid-sized to small-sized firms, which I guess is like anywhere between like 15 people and below. Um, They've got an interesting uh, game plan. Um, But on the technology side, uh, I would really focus on your tech stack. Um, You can't keep thinking in terms of, you know, we're an AutoCAD firm or we're a Revit firm or uh, we're, you know, Windows firm or, you know, we're a, a Mac firm. You it's no longer okay to do that. You've got to use the best tool for the job, um, at hand. So if, if you can't figure out a way to be efficient with your software, you know, it's like, uh, what's a good analog example. Um, so if you're using a, a rock to hammer in a nail, uh, you know, not really the best tool for the job. Uh, so use a, a nail. Or uh, use a nail to hammer in another nail. <laughs> that would not be very efficient. <laughs> it's it's true, but you know, whenever someone rolls out trace paper and, and starts a whole project again, I'm like, well, you're nailing in a nail with a nail, right? <laughs> yeah. um, you want to find the hammer. You want to find a, a good solid hammer. Uh, and so, thinking in terms of of a tech stack is how software software the you know software industry thinks. Um, in in architecture, when you start thinking the same way. Uh, and it, it can be something small like billing. You know, if you're using QuickBooks, well, it's not the best solution for an architecture firm anymore. Um, I might actually take a look at Monograph. It's a, you know, it's it's really a great UX kind of software, but it's built specifically for architecture firms. Yeah, you know, it helps track your time. Um, and Robert Ewan, you know, he's he's he under, he's an architect, and he's helping you know build build software for architecture. Yeah, Robert's a good friend of mine and a, an advisor, sort of an informal advisor to Entre Architect. Uh, been on the show several times. We'll put links on the show notes for that as well. I agree. Monograph is a beautiful software, 
one of the, my favorite things. And he's actually a, a monograph is a is a membership sponsor here at Entree Architect. And so uh, I agree. Check out monograph. Monograph.io. We'll have links to that. Yeah, and I didn't even get paid for for that for that <laughs> spot. <laughs> Robert will appreciate it. Um, um, another thing, if yeah, you're interested in, like, if you're interested in doing modular, uh, you know, go, go find a, a factory, go find somebody that, that does modular, um, small firms can, can easily kind of, the interesting thing about small firms is that they can move very quickly. If they choose to move quickly, they can, they don't have to go through a committee. They don't have to do anything to get, you know, this process approved or whatever. You, you can just go, go, go. Um, so, you know, Joel Hutchines at, at Splash Modular, you know, they do bathroom pods and they're really, really good at bathroom pods. So don't reinvent the wheel. Don't try to, to create your own bathroom pod. Just talk to them. They know how to do it. That That's some great advice. I, I, I think that there are many architects that have those ideas and, and have the the uh, innovative solutions to the problems that we see in the world. And I think a lot of us um, because of the personalities of most architects or many architects, we're afraid. You know, there's there's risk involved in some of that. And I know that from firsthand uh, with some of the decisions I've made over the years. It takes a lot of courage to break through that fear to get to where you want to go and solve some of the problems that you want to solve. Uh, Entree Architect is a perfect example of that, of, of, of the idea that I had for that and what I wanted it to become. It, I had to make some decisions to to push through that fear to, to keep moving forward. So if you have an idea like that, I would definitely take up uh, Clifton and his suggestion to, um, to just go do it, you know, just make it happen uh, and, and find some people who are doing innovative things and surround yourself with those people. So uh, you can find the courage together to make those things happen. This, um, the website is testfit.io testfit.io. You can go check it out. They have some great information. Explains exactly what it is. Has a great video. So you can see how it works. You can even get a demo. You can sign up for a demo and get a demo for it. Um, Clifton, um, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you about TestFit and about the future of architecture and where we may find ourselves in the not, not too far distant future. Um, thanks for joining us today and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the the platform opportunity to talk about what we do, um, and we're we're open to connecting with uh, anybody that's interested in uh, in us as well. Is the best place to connect with you on on uh, testfit.io? Is there a place to connect with you there? Yeah, there's chat bubbles. There's <laughs> there's a million ways to give us your contact information. You also send me an email, which is Clifton at testfit.io. Um, we're on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm all over the place. All right. Sounds good. We'll have links to all of that on the show notes. It's episode 297, entrearchitect.com slash episode 297. Clifton, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you've been listening to episode 297 with Clifton Harness of TestFit. If you like this show, if you have found some value, if this inspired you or motivated you or you think someone that you know might uh, might benefit from listening to this, share this link with a friend. Share this episode. It's episode 297, and the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 297. Please share it with a friend. If you haven't visited our new homepage at entrearchitect.com, 
Now is the time. Head over there now. Check it out. We redesigned it to be more useful for small firm architects like you. Find everything you need to help you build a better business. Links to this podcast, a search engine to find all the articles, resources, podcast episodes, everything we do. You can just search for it. It'll pop right up there for you. Access to powerful products and resources and access to all our Entree Architect membership levels. It's all there at entrearchitect.com. It's all there in one place for you right now, entrearchitect.com. Go check it out and let me know what you think. Let me know if we can make it even better. How can we make it better? How can we help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect? Let us know, love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening this week. Have a great one. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected 
annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.